thank you for that kind welcome. I'm so pleased to be here uh, at Oxford. Um, I did start my career teaching uh, at the University of Warwick in Britain, and uh, I, I know lots of people from that time, Dapo and Antonios, and more recently have met uh, Catherine. Uh, and and I, Oxford has always had a special place in my heart. Uh, I did my PhD viva in what were at that time Von Lowe's rooms, now Catherine's rooms, and so I, I have a connection with uh, All Souls also. Um, in fact, I was here uh, three years ago. I was just uh, uh, telling uh, Catherine Dapo, reminding them, uh, that I was here three years ago in March of 2012. It's the last time I gave a talk here. And at that time, I was talking on the same general topic, but I was uh, talking about the, the, the law applicable to uh, Iran's nuclear program at that time. And I remember I, I, made, a, uh, I made a prediction. I don't know if Doppel remembers this. He was there. Uh, but at that time, it was March of 2012, so we were in an election year in the United States then. And things weren't really moving diplomatically on the Iran issue. But I said, I predicted, that if Obama won a second term, <laughs> that early in his second term, we would have a diplomatic agreement on the Iran issue. And uh, it took a little longer than I thought. <laughs> But we finally got one in July of this year. Uh, so I, I, I think I, I, I was correct, although not on time. But I, I knew that the tea leaves would eventually sort of settle in, in the right direction because I, I knew that the interests of all did align fundamentally and they just had to work out the details. But that the, the, the essence of a deal had already been uh, agreed. So that's what I'd most like to focus on today, then, the most recent diplomatic and legal developments uh, with regard to Iran's nuclear program, uh, and particularly the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, as it's called, the JCPOA, which is the, the formal title of the new uh, diplomatic agreement that was uh, announced in, uh, in July of this year. What I will do, then, is, is briefly... Uh, describe the JCPOA, then I'll give legal background uh, so that we understand the legal uh, instruments involved. I'll briefly talk about the legal disputes that we've had for the last 10 plus years, 13 years, regarding Iran's nuclear program, and then finally I want to talk about the legal implications of the JCPOA then for those legal disputes. So that's how I will proceed. Well, the JCPOA itself uh, was the product of 20 months of negotiations, marathon negotiations in, in Vienna, uh, after the parties, meaning Iran, the P5 plus one states, and, and then the EU acting in its own capacity, after they first agreed on a set of principles in, in November of 2013. Um, the resulting agreement, the JCPOA text, is 159 pages long, uh, including five annexes. This took a lot of us by surprise. We really did not know that all of those people could come together on language like that, but they, they did. And uh, I, you know, I, I've 
as I read it the first time, I, I did a couple of blog posts on it, I really was impressed at the the level of detail, the level of sort of the degree of organization and comprehensiveness, how it uh, really was able to treat all the various uh, matters and disputes. So I'm really uh, quite complimentary of those who negotiated and, and those who wrote it. What is the general gist of the JCPOA? Well, the general idea is a diplomatic accord among Iran, the P5 plus 1 powers, of course, that's the United States, Russia, China, Britain, France, Germany, and then the EU acting in its own capacity, in order to try to settle in a diplomatic way the dispute that has been ongoing since 2002 regarding Iran's nuclear program. And in a nutshell, what the JCPOA does is, is <clears throat> uh, agree on a quid pro quo of commitments, whereunder Iran commits itself to substantially limit its nuclear energy program, and it's very specific in how it's to do that, uh, disassemble a certain number of uranium enrichment centrifuges, change uh, the facility at Iraq, which is a heavy water reactor, changed that into a light water reactor. So it's very specific about what has to be done to limit Iran's nuclear program, leaving Iran, however, with roughly 6,000 centrifuges still spinning and enriching uranium and contributing to their nuclear fuel cycle. In exchange for that, well, no, one more thing, and Iran also commits to... Uh, subjecting itself to a, an advanced uh, safeguards regime imposed by the International Atomic Energy Agency to verify the continued peaceful nature of that program. That's Iran's commitments. In exchange, and again through very detailed scheduled time frames, the P5 plus 1 and the EU agree to lift the sanctions that had been imposed for the, over the last seven years by the UN Security Council and by states acting unilaterally. Uh, these have been an array of economic and financial sanctions that have been crushing to the economy of Iran. And so over what is essentially a 10-year period, there are different time frames in here, but the, the essence of it is about a 10-year period in which all of these commitments will be met, are to be met, and at the end of that time, Iran is supposed to then be treated as any normal non-nuclear weapon state party to the NPT that has a civilian nuclear energy program. See Japan or Germany or any number of other um, uh, non-nuclear weapon states that have peaceful nuclear energy programs, no longer under any sanction. So that's the, uh, that's the general idea. Um, let's talk about the, the law that provides the context for the, the crisis over Iran's nuclear program and now is the background for the JCPOA. I'll try to do this briefly. Uh, the foundational legal document for uh, regulating nuclear energy and, and nuclear weapons is the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty of 1968, came into force in 1972. Uh, this document is uh, you know, widely subscribed to. Uh, almost all states are parties. Uh, it, it establishes two groups of states, the nuclear weapons possessing states and the non-nuclear weapon states. The nuclear weapon states are the five, the same five as always. Um, 
and everyone else is in the non-nuclear weapon state category. And uh, you know, in, in, in short, the nuclear weapon states commit uh, not to spread their nuclear weapons. They get to keep them, but they agree not to spread them any further. They also agree in Article 6 to move toward disarmament in good faith, title of a different lecture. But the non-nuclear weapon states uh, agree in the NPT not to acquire or manufacture nuclear weapons, but they also, in return, are granted uh, right the right to have a, a peaceful nuclear energy program. And in fact, in Article 4, the nuclear weapon states uh, obligate themselves to help to actually provide positive assistance to those programs. All right, so a couple of provisions most applicable to the Iran uh, case. Article 2, which is what I just mentioned about non-nuclear weapon states agreeing not to acquire or manufacture nuclear weapons. And then Article 3. Article 3 requires that all non-nuclear weapon states agree to yet another bilateral treaty between themselves and the International Atomic Energy Agency, the IAEA. We call these comprehensive safeguards agreements. And in them, the state and the IAEA agree on procedures whereby the IAEA will supervise the civilian nuclear energy facilities of the non-nuclear weapon state and make sure that no nuclear material ends up in a military program. So comprehensive safeguards agreements are bilateral treaties between each non-nuclear weapon state and the IAEA. Yet one further level of detail is the subsidiary arrangements which are concluded subject to or flowing from a comprehensive safeguards agreement, meaning that the subsidiary arrangements are then negotiated bilaterally between the safeguarded state and the IAEA, and these include very specific details about the sites the IAEA can visit, the forms of communication between them. Uh, one provision in particular is called uh, Code 3.1. I mentioned this because it's relevant later. In the subsidiary arrangements, Code 3.1 has to do with when a state has to declare to the IAEA the existence of a new nuclear facility. And this has been a subject of a dispute. That's why I mentioned it. I'll come back to it later. All right, so we've got the NPT, we've got the CSA, the Comprehensive Safeguards Agreement, and then we've got the subsidiary arrangements. Another uh, important relevant uh, legal instrument is the additional protocol agreement of the International Atomic Energy Agency. Uh, this was adopted by the IAEA in 1997. It was a response to the first Gulf War uh, because after the, the, the smoke blew away uh, in 1991 uh, and uh, you know, international inspectors were able to go into Iraq, they were amazed uh, and quite shocked by just how far Saddam Hussein had brought his nuclear weapons program prior to 1990. Uh, now, don't confuse that with 2003. What I'm talking about is pre-1990, there was an advanced nuclear weapons program in Iraq, which was disassembled over the decade of the 90s. But it was uh, determined by the IAEA that th there needed to be an ad additional authority in the IAEA to, if you will, sniff out these things before they got that far. However, it is an additional bilateral treaty that a, a safeguarded state must choose to sign. Uh, 
Iran has not ratified, brought into force an additional protocol agreement, as have many other, many other states haven't either. This isn't a problem. It's just uh, you know, a treaty that can be brought into force. Iran did voluntarily implement the additional protocol between 2003 and 2006, but after it was referred to the Security Council, it stopped doing so. So Iran's safeguards law situation is it's a member of the NPT, has been so since 1972, has had a comprehensive safeguards agreement in place since 1974, along with subsidiary arrangements, but it is not a party at the moment to the additional protocol. All right, the final legal source is uh, UN Security Council resolution. And these, uh, you know, I won't go through the history, but the, the, the dispute over Iran's nuclear program really began in 2002 when dissident groups uh, informed the IAEA of the presence of two facilities that had not been declared to the IAEA as they should have been, the facilities at Natanz and Iraq. And where was I going with that? Right. <clears throat> Um, where was I going with that? Right, the Security Council resolutions. Eventually, uh, because of the diplomatic impasse about these facilities, the Security Council uh, took the issue and in Resolution 1696 and then later 1737 um, commanded Iran, decided that Iran must cease all uranium enrichment and because Iran wouldn't do that, imposed... Uh, the first of what became several rounds of economic and financial sanctions through those resolutions. After the Security Council did that, of course, uh, a number of states acting unilaterally, particularly the United States and the EU, imposed their own unilateral sanctions on Iran. All right, let's move on to legal disputes that we've had um, about Iran's nuclear program since 2002. It's an area that I've been writing in since that time, and there's been a number of points of legal dispute. Uh, a lot of them have to do with the safeguards agreements that I mentioned, the comprehensive safeguards agreement and the subsidiary arrangements. The disputes have been about the, Iran's compliance with its obligations under its comprehensive safeguards agreement, and also Iran's arguments that the IAEA has overstepped its uh, authority in administering those agreements uh, and or has used incorrect interpretation of some of the provisions in uh, its Conference of Safeguards Agreement. This is important because this has to do with the IAEA's determination of whether Iran has been or is currently in compliance with its international legal obligations. And I think that, and that's relevant because the IAEA is the recognized technical supervisory body for nuclear safeguards agreements. And so the IAEA statements, for example, to the Security Council, are taken highly persuasively as a statement of whether Iran is in compliance. And this then feeds into the whole diplomatic, uh, you know, context as to whether. Iran is viewed as being in compliance with its legal obligations. And so it's important to Iran, certainly, and, and I think it's important for the sort of systematically uh, looking at the IAEA and its uh, relationship to its legal instruments. I think it's important to get this right, uh, to, to, to actually be correct in how we see the IAEA's interpretation of these treaties and whether and to what extent a state uh, for example, Iran is in compliance with them. So we've had 
ongoing disputes about uh, the interpretation of uh, safeguards agreements. One particular disagreement has been about whether the Comprehensive Safeguards Agreement allows the IAEA to inquire and to investigate and to assess either or both the correctness of a state's declaration of its facilities or the completeness of that declaration. I'll explain that briefly. What we mean is the Comprehensive Safeguards Agreement essentially operates by the state in question, the safeguarded state, giving a full declaration. They're under an obligation to give a full declaration of all of their nuclear energy-related facilities, all of the nuclear materials in the state, so that the IAEA can follow them and account for them. It's clear that the IAEA has the authority to inspect declared sites and facilities. The question has become whether the IAEA also has the authority, under the Comprehensive Safeguards Agreement, to basically snoop around for undeclared things. And uh, to what extent can they do that? And then to what extent should they use that as a legal standard? So let's say that a country has declared, as far as we know, everything that they have, and you verified that, yes, it's there what they said. But what if then the IAEA has some suspicion that there might be something undeclared? They can't be sure about it. Can they then use that as a legal standard to say, well, you're not in compliance with your safeguards agreement because we highly suspect that there are undeclared things? So this has been the question. And the IAEA's view is that, yes, they can use as a legal standard their lack of full satisfaction about the absence of any undeclared materials or facilities. And this is something that I've argued that, I've argued that that's incorrect on the basis of the text. And, and uh, that has not made me popular in, in Washington, D.C. and some other places because I'm sometimes seen as throwing a monkey wrench in the, uh, you know, the efforts of the IEA to do its job. I mean, my response is I'm trying to keep it honest with what the, the, the authorities that it has because I sort of have... Uh, I don't know I, what it is about me. I, 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 I'm, I'm generally a formalist about international law, and I don't like uh, international organizations sort of uh, engaging in mission creep and authority creep and doing things that uh, it doesn't seem to me from their, their, their uh, actual legal documents that they should be able to do. Uh, anyway, so that, that's, um, that's one issue. So safeguards. Uh, I mentioned the subsidiary arrangements. There's been debate about when... Iran should have, uh, should have uh, declared the existence of those two facilities I mentioned at Natanz and Iraq. Were they obligated to do it at that time or not at that time? These things we've thought about with regard to safeguards. Next issue of dispute, uh, PMD, possible military dimensions. In November of 2011, the IAEA uh, published a report in which it alleged that Iran had at least up till 2003, engaged in research and development of weaponization studies, meaning the actual nuclear warhead, the machine that if you put nuclear material into and do it in a certain way, will blow up. And uh, that report has been the basis for the IAEA's investigations and assessments about whether Iran in fact, did have uh, nuclear weaponization research and development pre-1993. 
This has been a real hang-up for the IAEA for some years now, ever since 2011, because, again, they have received from uh, third-party states, we actually know who it is, it's Israel and the United States, but they won't say that, who have provided intelligence information to the IAEA, uh, and the IAEA has used that intelligence information sourced from third countries as the basis for their uh, suspicion, allegation, about these uh, possible military dimensions. But they have not at all been forthcoming about the substance of this information. Uh, in fact, they haven't shared the documents with Iran either. So there, there are the, these allegations about what Iran has done. Iran always says, no, those are fraudulent uh, it, it's kind of it, it, it just so eerily reminiscent of 2003 and the lead up to the war in Iraq. You've got, you know, some intelligence agencies saying yes, 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 they they have done it, they're still doing it, and the IEA says we think that's credible, but we won't share the information with it, with Iran or or with the general, you know, public. Uh, but you just have to trust us that they are doing nasty things. And so that's, that's been a really interesting legal issue that I've written about, too, whether the IAEA even has the authority or should be looking into this question of weaponization studies not using fissile material. Because if you look at the IAEA's original statute, which predates the NPT, it's supposed to be a fissile material accounting agency. It's not supposed to be, you often hear in the news the IAEA referred to as the UN's nuclear weapons watchdog. Well, that, that has no basis in the IAEA statute. It is not a nuclear weapons watchdog. It is a fizzle material accounting agency, and that's all. But I think, again, because after 1991 Gulf War, and again after September 11th, which sort of revitalized concerns about nuclear weapons, uh, possession, the IAEA has been under a lot of pressure to expand the scope of its mandate to become a nuclear <clears throat> weapons watchdog when really it doesn't have the legal authority to do it. So I, I'm, I'm in no way against the IAEA. I think they're in a tough spot. They're sort of being pressured by civil society and by governments to take on this role of uh, you know the, the, the FBI of nuclear weapons anywhere in the world, but they don't have the legal authority to do it. And that can cause problems because then what legal standards do we use? So, for example, when they get intelligence information, they make accusations, the state says, no, they're fraudulent. Where do we go from there? Is it just suspicion then? Or is there, we don't really have any criteria for when, uh, you know, a state should be found in noncompliance with something because the obligation isn't there. All right, well... Finally, the UN Security Council resolutions. Uh, I'll be brief about this. I mentioned 1696 and uh, 1737. Iran has argued from the beginning that these are unlawful because they uh, command Iran to cease uranium enrichment, and uh, Iran considers that to be part of their right under the NPT Article 4 to have a, a peaceful nuclear energy program. But I was just mentioning these three, safeguards, possible military dimensions, and the Security Council resolutions as subjects of legal dispute that we've been having since 2002. All right, let's talk about the JCPOA now. Now that we have the context, the legal context, the legal disputes that we've been having, what are the implications of the JCPOA? Does it help? I think the answer is it helps a lot. The first thing one has to understand about the JCPOA, I think, is that it is not a treaty. 
Okay? It is not a treaty. It is explicitly, in its terms, a set of voluntary political commitments. I don't think there's any question about that. It's intended by its parties, explicitly stated to be non-legally binding. Of course, this shouldn't come as any surprise. Non-legally binding, uh, you know, sometimes called soft law. I know some people hate that term, but political commitments uh, in, uh, in, in document form. Think the Helsinki Final Act. There's lots of places where you'll have uh, very detailed political commitments by parties uh, that are non-legally binding. So I just want to make that clear. That's what the JCPOA is. It's not a treaty. But the political commitments that the sides have agreed to, if carried out, can or, and will have legal implications, and yet others of them will, in a sense, resolve some of the legal disputes we've been having. So let me turn to that now. What about safeguards? Iran has agreed under the JCPOA to provisionally apply the additional protocol. Remember I said Iran has not been a party to the additional protocol and only has been a party to a comprehensive safeguards agreement. That has been the basis of a number of our legal disputes. The additional protocol, if Iran does become a party to it, again, what they've committed to is provisionally applying it for eight years. If Iran does provisionally apply the AP, that will answer a lot of the safeguards questions because the additional protocol is very clear on the IAEA's authority to uh, uh, investigate and assess undeclared facilities and materials. So the AP will answer a lot of these questions about the authority of the IAEA under the Comprehensive Safeguards Agreement. <clears throat> I'll just, for a second, talk about this provisional application thing. You may be wondering, why didn't Iran just commit itself to become a full party uh, to the initial protocol? I think this was all about leverage. Uh, it's sort of a compromise position. I mean, for those of you who understand, provisional application, when you actually make a declaration of provisional application, you are then bound by the terms of the treaty until you decide to not provisionally applied anymore. So Iran will be bound by the terms of the additional protocol, but it still allows itself to be able to revoke that declaration. I think what Iran wanted to do here was go that far but no further, meaning not actually ratify and become a party to the additional protocol because they know that if they do that, there's no going back. There's no termination clause in the additional protocol. So they've committed to eight years of provisional application, which will, again, answer many of the disputes that we've had about safeguards, but it does leave them some leverage uh, to revoke their declaration of provisional application if, they, you know, if the other sides don't follow through. So that's, uh, that's an important commitment of Iran, the additional protocol. They also, in the JCPOA, uh, clarify the subsidiary arrangements issue that I mentioned before. I know it sounds very nuanced, but this was a big deal about uh, five years ago when yet another nuclear facility, the facility at, that's now called the Fordu facility, it's near the city of Qom. It's a underground, meaning under a mountain, uh, 
centrifuge enrichment hall that they had built. And it was discovered that they'd been building this for a few years. And so the, the question of new nuclear facilities and when Iran is supposed to, or by the way, any non-nuclear weapon state, when they're supposed to declare the existence of them, it's an important question. Uh, and so Iran has agreed in the JCPOA to what's called the Modified Code 3.1 standard, which says that they will declare a new nuclear facility the moment that they decide to start construction. So again, if they follow through with that commitment, that should clarify the situation with regard to when they're supposed to declare a new nuclear facility. So in terms of the, the safeguards disputes that we've had, the JCPOA in its requirement for Iran to uh, provisionally adopt the additional protocol, the clarity about uh, Code 3.1 adds a lot. What it also does, and this is what took me by surprise when I first read it, it sets up a dispute settlement resolution process in uh, what is that? Annex I, Section Q, Annex One, Section Q. The dispute settlement process has to do with identifying um, undeclared facilities and materials, and again, it's a dispute settlement process. So you've got all the states, the P5 plus one and Iran, on a joint commission. And when any state has questions about whether the IAEA can visit this certain site, they'll bring it to the, the Joint Commission, and the Joint Commission will make a decision. And again, at least as a political commitment, Iran has agreed to abide by that determination. So this sets up a way to be even that much more clear about the safeguards law application. Again, I know this sounds kind of uh, Byzantine, a lot of procedures in place, but it's deadly serious stuff. If Iran, for example, if the IAEA wants to visit a, a facility like the military facility at Parchin, which has been a big uh, source of contention, and Iran says, no, you can't do that, well, then, you know, in the West, people say, well, what are you hiding? And Iran says, well, it's a military facility. You shouldn't be able to go there, and it just becomes a source of contention. So... Under the JCPOA, we now have a, a much clearer process for resolving what could be potentially serious uh, disputes. All right, moving on. PMD, I mentioned possible military dimensions, uh, the, the allegations of Iran's past uh, nuclear weapons work. Again, it's been very difficult to know how to treat this legally because it's really not a part of the IAEA's mandate. It's not in the Conference of Safeguards Agreement. So what the JCPOA did was set up a, uh, a new process for the IAEA under a, a document called the Roadmap Agreement. It's all complicated. You've got the JCPOA, it's 159 pages. And then you've got the separate agreement, the Roadmap Agreement between IAEA and Iran. And that agreement, or rather that process, is supposed to produce a final report by the IAEA on the whole PMD issue, possible military dimensions issue, by December 15th of this year. It was incredibly ambitious from July to December. Remember, this has been percolating since at least 2011. And yet they said, all right, we're going to knuckle down and we're going to resolve this thing by December 15th. The IAEA is supposed to produce a final report. And in the, the terms under the terms of JCPOA, at that point, the P5 plus one will submit a resolution to the IAEA Board of Governors for taking, quote, necessary action 
with a view to closing the issue. The implication being they're going to try to put it behind them. I don't know if I can express how ambitious and how important that would be. Because the PMD issue always had the potential to be a poison pill for the whole thing. Meaning, if, as some conservative elements, particularly the United States, wanted, if the P5 plus 1 made any agreement contingent on Iran, quote-unquote, coming clean about everything that it had ever done with regard to nuclear weapons, the whole thing would be off. Because there's just no way that Iran was going to do that. You know, the Supreme Leader has issued a fatwa that nuclear weapons are you know, against uh, Islamic law, and so Iran just could not admit that they had done any nuclear weapons work, even though everybody knows they did, uh, back in the late 80s and early 90s. So again, the, a diplomatic resolution to this issue doesn't add to the legal landscape, but it resolves what was essentially a legal dispute about whether the IAEA should even be doing this. Now we have a, pro a process that will hopefully result in a final report by this December. All right, uh, third, added commitments regarding weaponization matters. So in, in the same vein of nuclear weaponization, if you recall I said in, in NPT Article 2, all it says is non-nuclear weapon states should not acquire, including manufacture, a nuclear explosive device. That's always left a lot of gray area about what non-nuclear weapon states can do up to that point. So if you consider manufacture to actually be something like putting the screws together on a, a nuclear weapon, there's a lot that goes into making a nuclear weapon before that point. You know, about design information, research and development on component parts, you know, you know, physics experiments on initiators, all sorts of things that you can do. And so states, including Iran, have uh, you know, at times argued that anything short of turning the last screw uh, was not prohibited. Well, the JCPOA uh, addresses this question in Annex 1, Section T, which I have right here, uh, in that it adds, again as a political commitment, but it's still important, as a political commitment, it says... Iran will not engage in any of the following activities which could contribute to the development of nuclear explosive device. I won't read them all, but it says things like designing, developing, acquiring, or using computer models to simulate nuclear explosive devices, and on and on and on. What I'm saying is it gives greater detail to what is in NPT Article 2. And as a political commitment, Iran has agreed to this. So that means hopefully, that it will give more confidence to the P5 plus 1 and, and the EU that Iran's uh, program is peaceful if they have committed to do this and there's no evidence that they've breached that commitment. So that's important, too. <laughs> Finally, the JCPOA provides for a very detailed and certain schedule for the application of the commitments of all sides. Um, ultimately, what is uh, conceived of is a schedule that results in the lifting of all sanctions, including the sanctions imposed by the Security Council. And I told you it's a, it's a roughly 10-year timeline, but the sanctions 
first start being lifted on what's called implementation day. It's just fascinating stuff. They've named all these days. First, there was adoption day. Then there was security council endorsement day. Now there's going to be implementation day. Later, there's a transition day. And there's even a UN security council lifting day. And it's all in there. I just, it's amazing the detail. We have now passed adoption day. That was, that was October 18th. The next big step is what's called implementation day. That's supposed to happen when Iran has, to the IAEA satisfaction, uh, disassembled enough centrifuges, uh, performed some of its technical commitments about its nuclear program. And on that day, the Security Council is supposed to lift its sanctions subject only to what's called a snapback provision that can be used over the next 10 years. The Security Council has endorsed this entire program in Resolution 2231, which was adopted July 20th. So the whole JCPOA framework has been endorsed, and the Security Council has agreed to do what it is, is supposed to do under the, uh, under the JCPOA. So on implementation day, which should happen in the next couple of months, couple of months, the Security Council will lift its previous sanctions subject only to the possibility of them being snapped back through a procedure that I can talk about in the comments if you want, the questions. But what it means is substantially most of the international sanctions on Iran will be lifted by February, March of 2016. And that's what Iran wanted most. What Iran wanted most out of this is to be recognized as a civilian nuclear energy state and to get the sanctions taken off. And the JCPOA has designed very carefully a schedule that everyone could kind of go back to their capitals and say, we won on, you know, to, to, so that the Iranians could say, we're getting the sanctions lifted early, meaning within the first six months or so. But then the West, particularly the United States to Congress, could say, we can snap them back at any time within the next 10 years. So it's all very uh, carefully constituted in order to give everybody what they want, or what they must have, rather, I should say, with some compromises that they can all take back to their capitals and say, we won. Uh, as you've heard in the news, things are going sort of okay with implementation. Uh, the U.S. Congress did... I can't say approve it. They weren't allowed to disapprove it. So that's done. Uh, the Majlis in Iran, kind of the same thing. They're going along with it. Um, we're now in this period after Adoption Day, before Implementation Day, when Iran is now trying, Rouhani's government, I should say, at least, is trying to implement their technical commitments. It remains to be seen whether something will happen, uh, either in Iran or in the U.S. There's talk in the United States of, well, sure, we'll, we'll withdraw our, our nuclear sanctions, but that doesn't mean we can't impose sanctions based on humanitarian concerns or you know, support of Assad and you know, doing an end run around it. And Iran has said, well, if you do that, the whole, the whole game is off. So I look forward to the next 10 years of a lot of brinksmanship and a lot of threats and a lot of posturing. Uh, and, of course, it all, at the end of the day, comes down to political will uh, in both countries. Because it's a political agreement, it can be done tomorrow. And I'll tell you, this has played havoc with my new book, just absolute havoc. 
because I, I've been writing a book on Iran's nuclear program and international law for about three years. And I was almost done with it, too. Uh, and then this happened. And so now uh, it's with OUP, and John Louth and I have been talking a lot about, well, how am I going to finish this thing when there's now this new diplomatic agreement? It's ongoing. You know, I don't want to write the final chapter, but then it, it gets uh, undone tomorrow. So I've been sort of pulling back and letting it play out for a while uh, so that I can write the final chapter with some certainty that it'll endure in its relevance. But that's my problem. Uh, overall, I think the JCPOA is, is just a, a real triumph of diplomacy and international law, I have to say. Even though it's not itself a lawmaking instrument, it resolves a lot of the disputes that we've been having that were legal disputes. So let me end there. Yeah, that's about right. Book day? Oh, right. I should have negotiated it, right? <laughs> The answer is yes. Okay. <laughs> but go ahead. I'll, I'll yeah, please. Um, the second is this notion of provisional application of the additional protocol. Mm -hmm. As I recall, it doesn't have a provisional application clause in it, does it? The additional protocol itself? Yeah. So this would be a unilateral declaration? You would be a unilateral declaration, yes. I think that's right. As I understand it, they they no, they they have not, nor will they sign the additional protocol during the first eight years. It will be a unilateral declaration of provisional application. Because I think that's really interesting. The provisional application mm. instances I'm familiar with tend to be where a state has signed a treaty, really? and there may be a clause in it allowing for provisional yeah. application. And we all know the example of Russia mm. under the Energy Charter Treaty having revoked provisional application, but Think of the 
North Korean purported uh, withdrawal from the covenant, which again is silent on withdrawal. Um, so I wonder if that was your intention in hmm. saying no termination clause, no going back, if mm-hmm. actually ratified. And then my last point's on the IEA um, uh, and the mission creep issue. Mm. Um, you mentioned the governing um, body, the governing board mm-hmm. of the IEA. One gets the sense that you have a concern that there are inadequate mechanisms of oversight and control within the IEA itself or external to the IEA, which is one of the concerns about mission creep. I look at this and think that the IEA has been around now for you know half a century, that it has seen a significant enlargement of its role in health and safety and peaceful use of nuclear power alongside non-proliferation. So isn't this a kind of normal evolution of an instrument of some antiquity in that to go back and insist on the strict literal interpretation of the constitutive instrument is really to ignore those subsequent developments? And I wonder the extent to which the JCPOA could have legal effect not as a binding treaty but as evidence of practice that at least some of the parties to the IEA and the NPT with respect to its interpretation and application. Sorry, that was a lot of questions, but I'll stop there. It was so stimulating. Oh, good. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Thank you very much. Um, To your first question, why not a treaty? I I think you hit on two of the big ones. One uh, being the intense desire to not have to submit this to the United States Senate uh, for advice and consent as a treaty. Uh, Just intense. And then, but... On the other hand, the, the Majlis in Iran, which would also, in its domestic order, have to consent, is just as sort of a minefieldy a place uh, with regard to this. I mean, the conservatives in the Majlis are, are intensely uh, opposed to it, so I really think a lot of it was not wanting to have to make this a treaty because of all the formality that would attach in the domestic sphere. Similarly, I mean, also, though, I think, and you see this in... Uh, soft law instruments, you, you can just get so much more detailed in a soft law instrument, uh, more specific when everybody knows that they're not. Uh, I think it's just sort of psychological when the diplomats know that this is not a treaty, they can be more creative and they can think, sure, we can do this process that's a, you know, a dispute settlement process. And how about that snapback idea? That's an original thought. Let's put that in there and see how it works. And if everybody is sort of unshackled by the fear of this uh, being legalized and it coming back to bite them in some way. They can be more creative. I think that's what it was. Provisional application. I, I want, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to remember. I don't think Iran ever signed the additional protocol. During, from 2003 to 2006, they, uh, they applied it voluntarily. That's what they said they would do. Without having signed it, without having ratified it, they agreed to uh, act according to its procedures. But I don't think they ever signed it. I, it's possible that I'm wrong there. I know they didn't ratify it, but I don't remember that they signed it either. And so I, I think that you're right to say that what we would be looking at is a unilateral declaration of provisional application without having signed it. And so I, I honestly, I don't know as much as, as you clearly do about other instances in which that may have occurred and it may be unique uh, as, as an instance and, and, and not with a state that's already signed something. So that is, as I understand it, how it would be for eight years, that Iran could at any time revoke its uh, declaration of provisional application and go back to uh, you know, not being bound at all by the additional protocol. That's how I understand it. 
again, that, that was, that's part of their leverage. But then termination clause stuff, that, it's interesting you raise this, and I'll, I'll just, just be honest with you. I, as I have read the Vienna Convention of Law of Treaties, uh, looking at the rules about you know, if, if there is not a termination clause, uh, it seems, I mean, I know there are some occasions on which you can withdraw from a treaty without a termination clause, but I remember them being just really difficult to satisfy. Uh, and so I, it's been my understanding that if a treaty doesn't have a termination clause, uh, it's going to be very difficult to withdraw legally. So what, what was it you were saying about there being a, classes of treaties that you can't withdraw from, but others that you might be able to withdraw from? No, the, the test of consistency with the object and purpose of the treaty is silent about withdrawal. Yeah. You look to see whether it would be consistent with its object and purpose. And to withdraw. To withdraw, yes. And the specific example I had in mind was a human rights instrument, the Covenant, where North Korea purported to withdraw, and you had a general comment, I'm worried someone helped me out here, on uh, withdrawal, which said that it would not be consistent with the object and purpose. Now, the general comment is not legally binding. Right. It never went to dispute resolution. But North Korea, after having purported officially to withdraw, no one recognized that withdrawal, and eventually it started submitting its national reports again. So mm -hmm. everyone turned a blind eye to withdrawal. There was no judicial determination of whether that was legally effective. But I the guess, legal test yeah. in the I guess I wonder how termination of a treaty could ever be consistent with its object and purpose. I'm sorry, so withdrawals, but still though, how could that ever be consistent with a treaty's object and purpose? Right. Right. That the parties intended to admit the possibility right. of denunciation or withdrawal, or the right of denunciation or withdrawal may be implied. So, this is what I always have in my mind that uh, if, if it doesn't have a withdrawal clause, you're pretty much screwed. You're, you're not going to be able to withdraw. I'd see the other way Really? If it doesn't have a, a denunciation clause, you're pretty much subject to um, withdrawal of the screen unless you can prove it. Wait, he just read it. Except. Well, yeah. You can say any treaty is made. In, I mean, you know, it's. I mean, by, simply by the fact that most treaties contain. I mean, you can make both arguments, obviously, but simply by the fact that even most human rights treaties contain. I mean, the whole idea about this is, you hmm. know, if it's you're creating an international organization or something, um, it might be, it might have an argument um, about about not being able to withdraw because an institution or something like that, but why wouldn't it be implied in most treaties? I mean, most arms control... Because I think the presumption runs the other way. I mean, some treaties do have a withdrawal clause. The NPT has a withdrawal clause, but I think I've always understood that if a treaty doesn't have a withdrawal clause, the implication is you can't. Well, what would be the point of having all the withdrawal provisions in the, in the, in the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties, then, which some, to some extent reflect customary international law? If a treaty has a withdrawal clause, and that withdrawal clause over... 
um, supersedes the, the provisions of the, of the Vienna Convention because it's a specialist provision. So you can yeah. write your own withdrawal clause and provide whatever you want. Of course. But if the, the point is that if you have a withdrawal clause, you go with that withdrawal clause, and if you don't have one, then you're absolutely screwed because there's absolutely no way in yeah. which you can show you can get out. What's the point of having all the withdrawal provisions in the Vienna Convention? There are not many withdrawal provisions. No. It, well, just, no, it, it's, it's, it's basically just two. Yeah. One says you can withdraw in conformity with the treaty, right. and the other one is this one. You, you may be thinking of termination. Where you can do it for, um, um, where you can withdraw from, for irrespective of what the treaty provides, material breach. For no, 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 no. That's suspension and termination. Suspension and termination, not withdrawal. Guys, termination is what you do when you can terminate the treaty because it's bilateral, for example, or if it's multilateral because all the parties agree. If it's a multilateral treaty, you obviously cannot terminate it. But if you think there's been material breach, then that the termination becomes withdrawal. I mean, if you look at it, it's not ter termination right. and suspension. You suspend it as between yourself and the breacher. And, well, yeah. Well, you can suspend it if you want. But you can say, you know, screw this. You guys, you know, there's material no, breaches. I withdraw. Is this because... It's get, I don't <laughs> We're getting a little off the rails. I think all of that actually was the favor of Dan I think so too. If you had a general right to withdraw, you wouldn't need to have all those specific rules of law. Yeah. It's As exceptions. You don't have this general right to withdraw right. that the law says if these things occur, then you can. But in the end, it's always subject to, to interpretation of the treaty if the states imply to have a right to withdrawal. And you can't do that in general. I mean, you can say it might be harder to prove that they imply withdrawal, mm. but then it's open to argument. You know, you compare it with other treaties and you, and you say, look, if all arms controls treaties and, and the NPT have withdrawal clauses, what do we make of the fact that this one doesn't? Is it that they imply that there should be one which is free, or is it that because they didn't state it, they actually? Mm meant that there is not. And I don't see this being an easy argument to make, oh, mm. simply because they didn't say it in this one, and they mm. said it in all the others, that must mean you can never withdraw mm. from this. My friends and I can have this discussion over a beer later. But, uh, <laughs> and I, I love, this is why I love Oxford. You have wonderfully brilliant people. Why could? <laughs> Sorry? It's absolutely right. But I, I wanted to get to Catherine's question, and I'm very interested in your, you know, your views about... Uh, <laughs> What you might call, uh, I mean, sometimes it's called evolutive interpretation of, uh, you know, treaties, but all, in the international organization context, evolution of mandate. I mean, I'm very interested in that. I guess as a, I keep using this word formalist, it's the best way I know to do it. I, I, I tend to be quite restrictive in looking at legal instruments for, you know, authority and, and right and all that sort of thing. And... To be honest, it just worries me that if we adopt the approach that, and I know like Dan Sarushi says this in his book about international organizations and lawmakers, that the, 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 the organs of international organizations can kind of take on something of a life of their own and in interpreting the treaty and moving it forward and evolving it, that scares me because I just, I see that as a way for, to get so far away from the original instruments that Think about predictability. I mean, if you're a state that signed on to the IA statute and a comprehensive safeguards agreement 40 years ago, and you're not on, I mean, the IA Board of Governors, by the way, is 35 states. It's not even a plenary. It's 35 states. 
And the idea that 35 states can essentially rewrite the treaties that you signed on to 40 years ago, it just concerns me as, as a principle of organization. You, it may, we may say in the end that it's just necessary because you don't want to have to renegotiate the treaty all the time. It concerns me that that would be the way when really you could, again, like the additional protocol, it is possible to have new law uh, and allow states to uh, you know, choose to have it or not to have it. Uh, I, I much prefer that to the idea of uh, evolution through the political decisions of uh, organs. And just quickly, the, the whaling case that just came out had uh, a, a section about this. Of course, this was the International Whaling Commission uh, had promulgated some, I don't remember what, I, I know it's in the book, but guidelines about how to interpret the International Whaling Convention and the court in one provision said, I'm paraphrasing, that the petitioner, in this case it was uh, New Zealand, right? Australia. Australia, it was Australia. Australia is relying too heavily on the interpretation given by the International Whaling Commission uh, of the International Whaling Treaty. And, and sort of uh, said that you shouldn't rely on a organ of an international organization like that, a non-plenary, even a plenary organ that they were, to interpret the underlying instrument. I, I think that's the way to go. But uh, Dapo, did you have, you had a hand up. Yeah, I, mean, I had a, a, a thought on that. I, I understood Catherine's point, and she'll correct me if I'm wrong, <coughs> not so much to be about the practice of the organization itself, but okay. rather the practice of the membership. Now, of course, those two things are not so distinct. Mm. Because you can say there's the practice of the organization, which is then not objected to by the membership. Mm. Um, and so in that sense, your concern about the rights of the minority mm. then would sort of go away. Unless, of course, the minority does continue to object. Yeah. I think that's where mm. there would be a real difficulty. Yeah. So let's say you did have mm -hmm. practice of, let's just say most members. Yeah, sure. I get, I get it. I get it. But one or two members continue to say no, 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 no. But if you had a practice which had just over time been acquiesced to by the membership without objection, mm. then you can ask what's wrong about saying that essentially mm. the parties have decided to rewrite the treaty over time. You know, so well, then aren't you just into the VCLT rules of interpretation, <laughs> Article 31, if you really can find agreement of the parties over time, then you're just within the rules. And I have no problem with that. Uh, I guess it's, what I see though is times in this little area where scholars and others, particularly those who work for the IEA, will say, but the Board of Governors has said the following and states generally have acquiesced when there are actually a lot of states that don't like it and have, are on the record as not liking it. And yet they'll say, the Board of Governors said this back in 1992, and, and generally it's been acquiesced in by... It's a statement like that. It's generally been acquiesced in without doing the rigorous like counting up of who said what over time, which makes me favor, well, why not put it to a vote then? Why not put it in an additional protocol? Why not amend the treaty? Why not be clear about it? Because I, I just see the other way as... And you're right to say it usually ends up being a minority of states. Uh, sometimes you have a develop, developing world uh, 
dissection there that one group of states sort of wants it to go this way. There's another group that really doesn't want it to go this way, but hasn't shouted from the rooftops about it. I guess I'm, I'm less trusting of that as a, as a model for normative development than I am, well, let's have it in an instrument. Let's put it to a vote. Now, and maybe the response is that's just not practical. You can't, you can't, uh, you know, always rely on an additional protocol or something to move the law forward. Uh, but I guess that's just my concern with doing it the other way, in this sort of normative evolution way. But in a way, I mean, isn't that going to happen with custom as well? I mean, that happens, we know that. I mean, you, you look at the human charter, it has happened already. Yeah. Um, and doesn't that, should that be, isn't the point that you should be on, on notice, that you should be shouting from rooftops if something's happening that you really don't like? Hmm. Because if you don't, then you'll just end up suddenly, you know, suddenly by it. And it's the same thing that happens in customary law. It's the same thing that happens... You know, in those evolutive interpretations, which are in reality okay, they're just amendments, but not. Mm. But states can do that. You know, the whole point is when something happens that you don't like, you have to be shouting it from the rooftops. If you don't shout it from the rooftops, sorry, but eventually you're simply going to be settled with it, and that's and mm. that's the deal. And everybody knows that. So, in a way, if if the states that really that don't like it, okay, they don't like it. They prefer like things to be. Otherwise, but they make the conscious decision that do I want to kick up a fuss about this? No, probably not. Mm. Well, I'm just sorry. It means you know it goes through. And so I guess then you have to ask what what exactly. And, and I hear what you're saying. It is analogous to custom. You, you'd have to look at statements at meetings when when I, I've read statements at NPT review conference meetings when you know the non-aligned movement by the for example will will say quite explicitly we don't like what's happening. We don't like this. We don't like that. Well, we don't like I guess if we could be if we could be methodologically rigorous about it and, and really and not just make statements. I'm not saying anyone here is. I, I'm, I'm I'm thinking about IAEA. The IAEA how they tend to do this. They'll you know they'll say Board of Governors has said everyone seems to be okay with it. Therefore, but I don't see a lot of methodological rigor in, in saying that. But I, I'm listening. I'm, I'm interested in this debate because it. Uh, I guess what we're talking about is, is sort of global governance. Right? I mean, like international legal uh, normative evolution. How should we understand international organizational rules and law to change over time? And it's an interesting area. about the issue of bad faith and uh, just in general in the legal disputes that you described and mm -hmm. in particular of the safeguards agreement and interpretation that Iran might want to give to mm. certain safeguards has the issue of bad faith come up in this, and what kind of arguments will be made because I think it's quite difficult to mm. prove or even to make a claim that something is in bad faith so I, I'm interested in knowing mm. if they did and how and about the No, no, that, that one's easy. That one's easy. Bad faith. You know, I haven't heard a lot of talk about bad faith when it comes to the, the Conference of Safeguards Agreement. Maybe it's because 
there's a lot of detail in there. And, and the fighting has really been about interpretation of particular provisions. And so I, I suppose both sides have, have had kind of colorable, if you will, decently arguments that you can make with a straight face uh, about their legal interpretation. And so I haven't, I haven't really heard uh, arguments about bad faith. The, the way that you do hear arguments about, about bad faith in the context of NPT Article 6, let's say, on disarmament, where it seems fairly clear what the nuclear weapons agency is supposed to do and they're just not doing it. Uh, that's more of a bad faith issue as I see it. So, no, I haven't really heard that in the, uh, in the, in the Iran case about safeguards agreements. It's more, you know, just straight uh, international legal interpretation stuff. Uh, North Korea, yes. Now, the NPT, thank goodness, does have a termination clause, Article 10, meaning thank goodness that we're not back to that issue of <laughs> whether you could. It has a termination clause, as most arms control agreements do, Article 10, and uh, it just says if you know a country considers it to be in its supreme national interest, it can withdraw upon the giving of 90 days notice or something like that. And uh, North Korea did, uh, it got complicated, and there are articles written about this. Masahiko Asada wrote a great article on it. The timing was a little off, meaning, what was it, that they said, you're supposed to give, was it 90 days or six months notice, but North Korea said, and this was in 1995, six, I think, North Korea said, we're withdrawing as of tomorrow at noon. And so, and then a lot of states objected, and so they sort of went back and forth about this, but I think the best legal analysis is that they have now withdrawn. I mean, they withdrew properly at the time, even though they kind of did it wrong procedurally, but they... So yes, by far most people in this area think that North Korea withdrew uh, from the, the NPT. Yeah. The risk of opening up a can of worms, I'm just interested to hear your views on the snapback provisions for sure. the Security Council uh, resolutions and how those would fit in, particularly with the discussion of sort of evolving norms and what the Security Council yeah. could not do in terms of uh, sanctions falling away and then automatically yeah. stepping back or requiring a further resolution. Yeah, it was a fascinating thing. One of, and again, the JCPOA is full of these creative solutions. Uh, the, the way that they structured it, because of course, what Iran wanted was the Security Council to say all of a sudden, all prior things are done, all things have become new. Uh, that, but it was important to some states, particularly the United States, in order to sell it to the domestic populace, in order to be able to say the sanctions are temporarily on hold, but we can put them back at a moment's notice if Iran so much as twitches. And so they had to design a way, because as at the moment, you had 1696, 1737, and others in place. And so in order to actually withdraw them or terminate them, you'd need all of the permanent five on board, and Russia was not going to be on board with uh, just plain, or rather with uh, anything that would, how should I put this? Well, here's a creative solution they came up with. They said in the JCPOA that the Security Council resolutions would uh, the words are something like, cease to be in effect on implementation day, subject, however, to over the next 10 years, 
the snapback procedure. And the way it works is at any time during the, the JCPOA's uh, tenure, <laughs> any state can complain to the Security Council that one of the other parties is, in, is in, acting in disharmony. At that point, the Security Council will decide whether to continue the sanctions relief. That's right. Whether to continue the sanctions relief. So the procedural posture is they'll decide whether to continue the sanctions relief, and that means any one of the permanent members can vote against that measure to continue the sanctions relief, including the United States. And if they do, the sanctions come back into force. So the creative part was styling procedurally the, the measure to be a measure supporting the continuing sanctions relief that then would require all five permanent members to pass. That's what they call the snapback procedure. And what it means then is the United States can say truthfully to Congress that acting by itself, meaning first as complainer and then as permanent member of the Security Council, it can bring back the sanctions that had been temporarily suspended at any point during the 10 years. I mean, does that contribute to law, to practice? My initial thought is no, really. To me, and I'm open to thoughts about it, to me, this is just the Security Council agreeing to sort of a creative way through. Uh, I don't see that anyone has particularly compromised on its power or procedure. I mean, I'm, I'm open to other thoughts on that, but it just seems to me to be a creative way that the Security Council has decided to treat this issue in order to get people on board. And do others have a view? Antonio's? There are going to be like, doesn't, do you think there needs, there needs to be some sort of Security Council resolution suspending the sanctions? And introducing this sort of reverse veto procedure. They did that in 2231. So they've done that. They've done that. The endorsement. They endorsed the whole thing, meaning... But it's one thing to endorse, hmm. right? The Security Council hereby endorses da-da-da-da-da. And it's another thing to say the Security Council acting under Chapter 7 of the Charter yeah. suspends the sanctions in Resolution 1697 or whatever, what is it? 1696 and 73. I think that is what they did. In, in 2231, they not just said, they didn't just say this is a good thing. They said, they went through, it's, it's, over, it's over 100 pages long, Resolution 2231, and it, uh, it says on adoption day, as defined in the JCPOA, the Security Council decides this. On implementation day, as defined in the JCPOA, the Security Council decides this. And so I think they have already made the decision that when that day comes... They will decide? No, no, they don't have to decide again. They have decided that the sanctions will be suspended. Okay. I think that's how they did it. So they structured 223... They two, two, three. decided that from a particular day, the mm. sanctions will be suspended. Yeah. But then if that's the case, to reimpose it, 
But again, what they've done is they've tried to do all of this together and they said, they put in the snapback provisions and said, so, you know, on day certain, they'll be, the, the sanctions will be suspended. Subject, however, to the snapback provision that is defined as follows. And so they've already said, if we decide to, and it's just, so it's just sort of a long and convoluted way of giving their decision under Chapter 7 to the functioning of this entire program. Oh yeah, no, that's right. The Security Council had to agree formally to do the things that it was supposed to do in the JCPOA, and they have done that. Resolution two two three one. I think we may be out of time. Great. And with on that note, right. uh, please join me. Thank you very much for having me.